Welcome to Life's Booming, a podcast by Australian seniors. I'm your host, James Valentine. In this series, we're celebrating grey nomads, the wonderful characters who pack their vans and hit the road to explore and embrace places and spaces off the beaten track. We're finding out what inspired them to set off, what it takes to live off-grid and what it's like to live on the road. Grab a cuppa and settle in for some cracking tales. In this podcast, you'll meet some extraordinary characters and hear the fabulous stories that have shaped their lives on the road. Perhaps you've already called yourself a grey nomad or maybe you're curious about setting off on your own first adventure. Either way, we're here for you. If you are willing to dream, we'll show you how far that open road can take you. Let's meet Tony and Lisa Southwell. A few years ago, Tony fought off throat cancer and had terrible survivor's guilt. So he and his wife, Lisa, hitched up their caravan and took off, taking the time and space to mend physically and mentally. What was initially meant to be a six-month holiday eventually turned into more than two and a half years. And after Lisa, an ex-ballet dancer, had surgery on her ankles earlier this year, they've headed bush again. I've managed to catch up with them. Well, look, I don't really know where. They're taking some time out from bird watching and cooking bush tucker to grab a cover. Tony and Lisa, hello. Hey, James, James. how are you? I am pretty well. Where, where are you? So right now we're held up at Causeway Lakes, Cool Waters Caravan Park at Causeway Lakes up at Yapoon, which is where we raised all of our kids and we just dropped back in here just to catch up with some old friends and and it be that little bit of nostalgia about where we came from, or at least our kids came from. It just so happens that we're on our way to see our oldest daughter in Townsville, and we'll get there at some stage in the next few months, but we're waiting to see where we go. And like our catch cry is really to Coddy Womple, which just means that we go on a random journey to a vague destination. But we know we're heading there somewhere, and we'll get there when we get there. I'm sorry, uh, Lisa, Tony just used a strange word in the middle there. It's a, it's a <laughs> verb, I don't know. Uh, what was it? It's called cottywomple. So we always say we're cottywompling, and it means to travel in a purposeful manner to a vague destination. So <laughs> wherever we end up. <laughs> Is this your very own word? Is cottywomple your, your own word? No, it's an old English word that a really good friend of ours mm. and said, Really, you epitomise this word, cottywompling, and thanks to Jilly, we chucked it on our website and it's been our decree ever since. We cottywomple day after day. Do you describe yourself as cottywomplers rather than grey nomads? No offence to the grey nomads, but I like to call myself a freelance adventurist. I like that sense already that where you said, look, we're going to visit our daughter and Tony, you, you waved vaguely in the direction of Townsville. We'll get there in the next few months, <laughs> get there eventually. It's such a different sort of time frame from I'm stuck in nine to five. I've got to be here. This has got to be finished by a certain time. I've got to do the next thing. But you're in a completely different time and space really, aren't you? Absolutely. The reality is it's if you're hungry, it's time to eat. If you're tired, it's time to go to bed. I I can tell you a story. We lost our credit card in Broome and uh, on the way to Broome across from Karajini and we had to pick up a credit card and the girl on the phone, she goes, I won't be here till Wednesday. And I went, okay, that's great. What day is it today? (laughs) And she said, really, don't you know? And I said, no. And she told me and I said, oh, okay, two more sleeps. We'll be right. We'll see you in two more sleeps. (laughs) And that's the way we want it to be. Yeah, yeah. Lisa, did that take a while to adjust to, 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 is that something that came on you gradually as you took on this life? I think we managed it quite 
quickly, really. In the first year that we started, uh, because Tony was still recovering from the cancer, he still had three monthly appointments to fly back to Melbourne. So we always tried to work out, right, in three months we need to be in Perth near a major airport in order to do that. But as far as anything else goes, that was pretty much it. So, yeah. Tell me a little more about that year or so preceding this. Sounds like there was a lot of medical dramas, a lot of stuff to deal with. Tell me about some of that and how you made the decision to then get the van and take off. Tony was diagnosed in January of 2016. Mm. Then we embarked on that journey, which is Tony's own journey, and we were all there to support. We were always planning to go away, but probably not for another couple of years. But this, it just brought it to fruition a lot quicker. And Tony will say, I'm sure you only get one life. And our children were at that stage. They were just about off our hands. Sounds terrible. But yes, (laughs) we've got four children. It was, let's let's go now. Things just fell into place and we went. So it it had been a lifelong dream as such, Tony. Or you'd always always seen yourself doing this? James, I've brought my children up from the day they were born that there is only really one thing in life that's valuable and that's experience. You can't hang your hat on material assets. It's the experiences of life that create the fabric of the person you become. And so for me, it's like right from the day they were born, it was every single adventure that I could take them on. And so I will always, they're the centre of my life anyway, but when they turned around, when we were talking about leaving, I just, they just turned around and said, Dad, we know that you've got to go and do it. And we, we thank you for everything you've done for us up until now, but go and do what you need to do. And that support has been there ever since. Three or four years later, they still fully support our endeavours to go on and do. You know, and a lot of it really comes back from the fact that once you're in the cancer club, there's a strong chance you're going to get it again. And I never want to wake up with cancer and say, I wish I'd have used that time wisely. So I'm using that time wisely right now and never worrying about what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. Lisa, you've had your own medical difficulties with your ankles. You've had surgery on your ankles. Yeah, with Tony's cancer, with that sort of stuff, does the medical stuff worry you at all when you're out the back of wherever? No, not really. The first one we did stay put for a, a few weeks, but this time we didn't really have anywhere to stay and we thought, let's just do this. I've graduated to one crutch, but I was on two crutches. It has been challenging, wow. <laughs> but it's something that I just couldn't put off any longer and it was making life hard. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That's a very polite way, James, of Lisa telling you that I, she thought I was an idiot when I said <laughs> I wanted to go, but the thing was... You're going to be better off recuperating on a beach or on a lake somewhere than you are in four walls in the middle of a suburb. It was just like, come on, let's go. I know it'll be difficult, but I'll make it work for you. And she's He's been really good. He's done everything. I really haven't had to do much. So we just did it and it's worked. Do you both believe that really rather than perhaps, oh, we better wait until we're well and that sort of stuff, you, you, for your cancer, Tony, and for your ankles, Lisa, you've just gone get back into it, let's go, we know where we want to be, it's better out there. James, when we set off in November of 2016, I'd gone from 108 kilos to 78 kilos. I was as weak as, and I thought, what's the point? Get out there because the spirit uplifting that you get from enjoying life will help you recover. I pulled up to the Gloucester tree over in Western Australia and I wanted to climb it. 
had a teary meltdown moment when I realised that my body just a few months, like six or seven weeks post-final treatment, was just never going to be capable of climbing this tree. But that's the deal life gives you. But it, it inspired me. It helped me to think, don't worry about trying to rush things. You will get better. And the journey has helped me get better and get through all of that. What's the Gloucester tree? So the Gloucester tree is over in Western Australia and it's the tallest tree. It was used for a fire platform. And so you can climb up the side on steel spikes all the way to the top and it's a massive big climb. But down the bottom it says, if in doubt, don't. And so I started to climb. I got to about 10 metres and then I started to feel the pain in my legs because I'd never used my legs that long. The last thing I want to do is get up there and not be able to get down and cause a national rescue to come and get some (laughs) lunatic who decided to climb to the top of the tree. It was a moment that for the first time in my life, I'd actually realised that my body was not invincible. And it was like, I'd been through all the cancer, but that was that one moment where I thought, you're not ready yet. You're not quite there. Take the time, like all the doctors have told you, take the time to fully recover and don't try to rush it. And so it, it, that just helped me move forward. And Lisa, did you feel the recuperative powers of the road? Was there something more relaxing, even though I'm imagining trying to get around campsites and caravans on crutches has been very difficult, but was it? Was there something better about it? Oh, definitely. Once you're in a place and you're settled and you've set up yeah, it, it's quite relaxing, and but no, just being in a different, a different place, a different landscape. Yes, it was great. Let's talk a little bit about relationships. Like, how do you manage the relationships with those who are still back in the cities? My parents are still alive. Sadly, Lisa doesn't have any parents, and so we have our four kids. And the first thing we do, no matter where we are, the first thing we do when we pull up is we text them all, and we say we are safely here, and we're here for however long. We use the wonders of modern technology. They, we have Google location on my phone so that they all know if they want to find out where we are, they just click on and they can see where we are. We then have our travel blog. So that allows all my family and all my friends and all of our people that are near and dear to us, they can follow that blog and they can see where we're at all the time. So we would do a blog every two or three days to let them know what's going on they can comment back on it or they'll ring us or they'll but we're still very close even though we're far away it would be a lot harder if we didn't have the technology that we've got in the world today yes we're sitting down writing a letter looking for a post office box at very different times weren't they what's the travel blog details is it open to the public like we all have a look yep if you just search facebook for oz oz Roman, which is roaming without the G because I'm too lazy to type the G. So just Oz Roman, you'll find us out there. Nice. Isn't that isn't the technology amazing? And how well does this work around the country? You're like, what's reception like? And you always log on. How does that go? No, you can't always no. log on. And and <laughs> but but there's an upside and a downside to that. Where you can't log on, it's because you're in somewhere incredibly spectacular and you are so far off grid that you might have to drive thirty or forty kilometers to get signal so you can say hey, we're having such an amazing time, but (laughs) see you, we've got to go back. Unfortunately, there are not Telstra Towers and internet at places where you're really seeing the true parts of Australia. Which is part of the joy. How far off-grid have you gone? What's the most remote bit you've got to? Just recently, just outside of Dululu, there's a place called Lake Victoria. It's right in the middle of absolutely nowhere. You drive down through three or four kilometres of 
really soft dirt and you'd get to this magnificent lake and you're there with a few other lucky people that know it there, but you might as well be the only person on the planet at the time. And so we just seek out all those little things, whether it's the lakes outside Cunnamulla or Cloncurry or down Cape Levique, just heading down the beach. I'm loving that sense that you paint of Australia, the place names, the distance, the range that you've covered. You suddenly go from the Territory to South Australia and these lovely spots that sound so magical when you describe them. It's amazing. It's amazing. There are some just incredible places out there that probably most a large quantity of Australians have never seen. But yes, it's beautiful. As a population, we tend to want to rip off overseas to go and have a look at things. But when you take the time to have a look at what we've got, like anybody that's been to Karajini National Gorge will turn around and you just think, oh my God, we've got it. It's here and it's in Australia, but it's absolutely sensational. It's if you go to Bujamala, Lawn Hill Gorge, you're out there in north of Mount Isa and you're just driving through absolutely nothing and you come across it and it's like a, a Garden of Eden, like you know, oasis, and you think, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Is that the most magical places, Lisa? Is that the most the ones that stick in your mind? Oh, definitely. That sticks in my mind. I'm very much a, a beach person too and there are some amazing beaches. Personally, I loved all around Esperance, around Lucky Bay. I don't know. A lot of people travelling would probably know it. I know when we were planning the trip, I saw pictures of it and put it on the list. And yes, there's some beautiful beaches. When it's right on the ocean, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. How do you decide what you're going to do? So we use wiki camps uh, quite a bit because that gives you a lot of feedback from other people. But the greatest source is the people you meet in the caravan parks. Dare I say this, the people you meet when you're out free camping on the roadside, because caravan parks are traditionally for people on holidays. Free camps, you'll find the people who are living on the road and they are just a wealth of knowledge. And they'll say, oh, have you seen this? And so your mental bank is just taking all these details down. And then you think, where'd that bloke say? Let's go and try and find that. (laughs) It's that wisdom of people on the road who've been there and done that. You just open your mind to the fact that, hey, it's a hundred k's over that way, but do we care? Let's go do it. And you get there and you think, this was so well worth the journey to get here. What is the camaraderie of, of the road like? What are the rules of etiquette about how you talk to one another and, uh, <laughs> you know, socialise? We pulled up in a free camp and we were there relatively early and we had a beautiful view of what was going to be an amazing sunset. So we set the van up and we'd just gone back inside to have a drink and there was a knock on the door. And this is where the etiquette come in. This guy, he was in his 80s, he said, do you mind if we park behind you? And I said, mate, it's a free world. You can park wherever you like. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know. But some people get a space is this. I said, mate, I, I really couldn't care. And he said, but we'll be right up behind the back of your van. I said, look, it, it really, it will be a pleasure to have you share the, share the view. Anyway, we left him for a few minutes and then he comes back and he knocks on the door again and, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is good. Mm-hmm. What's happening now? And he's standing there with two beers and he goes, you want to come and join me for a beer? We sat there, both of us, talked to him and his wife for four and a half hours. So that's what you find. There was another situation of that lady in the Avan touring group. She pulled in. She's 83 years of age. Within five minutes, she's walking around through the, through the bitumen of the roadside pull-off. She's got a glass of wine in her hand and she's going, come on, you old buggers, hurry up and get your caravans up. It's drinks time. And you just, so all of a sudden there's this immense joviality in the caravan, like in that site. 
And we all just had a great night. And so it's just instantaneous and it's genuine and it's true and it's really enjoyable. Have you made long-term friends? Do you make plans to say, that's great, look, we're getting on so well, I'll meet you in, I'll meet you in Broome or something like that? Um, we have met a few people and we, we, you know, we keep in touch and give emails and addresses and um, all that sort of thing. <coughs> but you do find that you do meet somebody and you, you don't plan to see them again, yeah. but you do. In fact, it's almost like you're stalking each other because you'll see them the next few towns and we've had people like that have gone f- for months on end where you see them again and, and they're usually the people that you keep in touch with. Yeah, and do you ever, it, it, it almost sounds like privacy might be the issue sometimes. You know, just, we do just want to be alone. Uh, we're just trying to be quiet here. We've, you know, we're not in the mood for drinks tonight. <laughs> Look, that that's exactly right. I mean, some days you're so worn out from the adventure that you have that you just think, yeah, just a fire and a nice chill. And it's really nice to just be there on your own every now and then. And it's it's just this serenity of you can if you want to, you don't have to if you don't want to. It's even the same when you pull into a big station stay and they have the, the communal campfire happy hour. There's never any pressure or there's never any, oh, look, they're too, they think they're too good to come along. Every single person just does what they feel, but they're really welcoming if you want to be. It was a challenge for me right at the start because when we set off, I turned around to Lisa and said, this is it now. I want to put cancer behind me and I don't ever want to discuss it again. We're going to go and this is going to be my cathartic way of getting rid of it. And this is not an insult or offence to any of the grey nomads, but people are always inquisitive and they want to know why. And because we're blessed in as much as we don't quite look the age as we are, we were always trying to deal with these invasive questions as to what a mum and dad got a lot of money or did you win the lotto? Because they couldn't understand why we would be doing what they they were doing and, and definitely be 10 to 15 years younger than them. And so in the end, one night, I just, I don't know, I just lost it. I said, if you really, if you really need to know, I'm, I'm a cancer survivor. And that just went down this completely different conversation, mm-hmm. such a supportive and nurturing conversation. But it was also incredibly releasing for me because instead of not talking about it, I found the ability to talk about it was just, it just helped me recover from that survivor guilt process that I'd been going through. So, yeah, there's a totally different element to when you're with a group of real, true, on-the-road grey nomad travellers to being in a caravan park where there's a whole stack of holiday makers, but it's a great lifestyle. So far, we've talked about sort of the friendship and the scenery and the, the travel and the beauty of the spots. Is there something else that you do? I can imagine going to look at stuff. I still want something else that I'm actually interested in or, or engaged by. Lisa, what other things do you do? We like to volunteer a little bit. We have done, I think, three or four stints in Blaze Aid camps. So I'm not sure if you're aware of what Blaze Aid does, but they're um, a, a group of people that come together to assist. Usually it's farmers particularly, and it's usually helping them at a time of need when there's been either like a cyclone, a flood, fires. So we have done some of that and some of it could be days or weeks, which we've done as well. That kind of thing. Bird watching. We Yes, that's probably particularly 
close to my heart. I quite, yeah, really enjoy that. We get our binoculars out and, oh, my goodness. What have you seen? Wedgetail eagles, which are, I think, for a lot of people on the road, you just, you long to see a wedgetail eagle up close, unfortunately, probably at a, on the side of the road with some roadkill. But still. <laughs> yeah, that's the circle <laughs> of life. Tony, tell us the uh, sea eagle story. We were sitting on a beach at Yurangan and I was sitting at a barbecue just watching the sun starting to get ready to, to sit thinking this is going to be very nice. Then all of a sudden I just saw this thing flying towards me and you could tell, but you could tell that this was a fairly big bird coming towards me and I'm thinking, what is it? Is it a pelican? Or, and as it got closer, I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is, this is good. This is a sea eagle coming towards us. And as it, it just kept flying straight towards me. And so you think, I hope it's not going to come and get me. But it just landed in the tree. And as I looked up right up above me, I kid you not, no more than about five or six metres above me, there's this massive nest. And so this sea eagle lands and it's got a fish in its talons. And at that stage, it's in its beak. And it just starts devouring it in front of us. And there's its chicks in the nest. And you would pay a squillion dollars to actually see that. And we just watched it and witnessed it right there because we were Johnny on the spot. And the photos, and I know this is going to sound gory, but you can see the blood spurting out of the fish while it does that death bite on it. And then it just eats it all, leaves a bit on the on the branch of the tree, hops over and feeds it to its little ones. And it's just, wow, <laughs> If I'll probably never see anything like that again. It puts me in mind of talking about food. What's your best cooking experience? What's your most impressive meal that you've cooked up in the camp? That's going to be my camp oven. We have a caravan with an oven in it. We have a gas barbecue outside that's an oven. We've got the cooktop, but there is nothing better than a camp oven because a camp oven really tests your skills. And so it doesn't matter, you know, what you eat. It's putting it in a camp oven and being totally reliant on the coals that you've got. Because I really like bush tucker. I'd managed to round up a little bit of bush veggies and things that you could put in there. And so roasting some really nice kangaroo with the bush tomatoes and a little bit of dorigo pepper and then your normal veggies and a little bit of salt bush so you get your veggies, you get that salty flavour. Putting it in a camp oven and leaving it there and knowing that when you're going to pull it out, You've got your red wine jus that you've made that you pour over the top of it. It's got a little bit of pepperberry in it. And you sit down and it's just, I've done this over an open campfire, miles away from anywhere. And I would pay a lot of money this in a Sydney restaurant or a Melbourne restaurant, <laughs> but I'm having it here and I've knocked it up myself. And anybody that's on the road will tell you, it doesn't matter. A burnt sausage that you cook on an open fire tastes better than a filet in any restaurant anywhere. <laughs> uh, Lisa, was uh, Tony's kangaroo dish actually any good? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually, I have to say. He pretty much can turn scrambled eggs into a gourmet dish. So yes, he outdid himself definitely. When we were in South Australia as well, I also managed to be able to cook lobster in a camp oven almost to perfection. That is impressive. That's, That's very impressive. <laughs> Just describe the camp oven a bit more. What is it? So the camp oven's a cast iron pot with a cast iron lid. They come in varying sizes. And, and so what happens is you use the heat from the coals and not the direct flame. So it's like putting your food into a, a big, heavy cast iron heat generator. As long as you don't have too much direct heat on the bottom, you won't burn the, the product. 
I can make bread, I can make damper in a camp oven and it's, you can put coals on the top of the lid so that you get that heat all around and it's quite a bit of practice to know exactly how to have the right heat for what you're trying to cook and to maintain that heat. It's like a smoker all in one go because the flavour is, everything is captured in that camp oven so the flavours permeate through everything and it's just brilliant. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Tell us about the most interesting person you've met on the road, the most interesting encounter. Very interesting man who asked to park behind us. So when he gave us the beer and we sat down, his wife was there with us and we just used the little bit of space between his camper trailer and our van because it was the shady spot. And this guy, he was 87 years of age and he proceeded to tell me and his wife was there and so you knew he wasn't telling furfies, he was telling the truth. 65 years earlier at the age of 22. Have you ever heard of the Overland Track in Tasmania? So this guy was one of the people that built it. Every Friday afternoon, he'd come home from work at 20 years of age. He'd say to his new wife, I'm going to help build the Overland Track. Now he didn't jump in a car. He put the stuff on his backpack and he walked. And then he'd meet up with his mates and they'd walk in, carry the gear that they were going to use and they hand cut parts of the Overland track and developed it all up and everything. And this guy, he then went on to tell us, show us his map of Australia, where he'd been. Just imagine a tapestry that has been built for 65 years. This guy had been everywhere. And he was one of those people that his wife said, he will never go on the same piece of road twice. So he will find a way, he'll look on a map and he'll go, if I cut through this farmer's paddock, I'll get to this farmer's paddock. And if I can ask this farmer, if I can go across that paddock, I can get to that road and I don't even have to drive through the bitumen. And so that, and she's there and she's going, that's exactly what he does. And she said, at 87, the only thing I'd ask him is that we don't go quite so remote on so many rough roads. And he turned around and he looked at her. He said, I've told you this once before, that's never going to happen. And she was just had this glint in her. Now this, this guy, he was so inspiring because he'd, he'd worked out that at 23, 24, he came home to his wife and he said, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to work as much in the year as I need to raise enough money so that we can take the rest of the year off and travel. And he'd done that with his kids and with his family for 65 years straight. Worked for what he needed and then that's it, pack up and off we go. And, you know, like he'd never even considered leaving Australia. He just... He said, there's just way too much to see, way too much that's not even documented that I've seen that it just blows you away. And I'm just thinking, wow, why can't we all live that life? Mm. He fed his kids, he educated his kids. They, he had very successful kids. The trauma of being dragged away all the time never affected them. It's improved their life. Just inspiring. Yeah, fantastic. What's the biggest disaster you've had? On the way from Karajini across to Port Headland, where we not only had one flat tyre, we had two flat tyres because the road was so corrugated, we were just being, you know, like we were down to 40 kilometres an hour and you were hitting all these really sharp rocks and then all of a sudden the ute's got a flat tyre and that's great because we got a spare for the tyre. So you're covered in red dirt, you're sweating like a pig because it's that humid and you're changing the tyre. You've got no way to clean up. You get back into the car and less than 30 kilometres later, you're dragging your caravan behind you like a wet sack of potatoes because it's got a flat tyre. But at that stage, you're in the almost at the top of a ridge, so you can't stop. You've just got to keep dragging your caravan 
even though you know you're on the rim until you can get to a safe place to pull over and then you're in soft sand and you've got to work out how you're going to change your tyre and you're still 150 kilometres away from anywhere that's going to help you and you think one more flat tyre and we're history and then you lose your credit card in the side of the road. We did 200 kilometres in seven and a half hours mm. and you get there and you think, wow, that was a bit of an adventure, wasn't it? Yeah, but don't ever want to do it again. Never want to experience it again, but it was fun. How many spares? Cans of petrol, water, emergency stuff have you got with you? The two spares. There's the spare for the ute and there's the spare for the caravan. On this trip, we haven't got any, but when we were more remote over in WA in Northern Territory, we always used to have 50 litres of fuel in the back of the car. Because we had extra tanks put into the caravan, we always had 160 litres of water with us. We got two 80-litre tanks. We never saw that situation. And if we were going somewhere where we were a little bit off grid, we'd always buy two cartons of bottled water Mm. just so that they were in the back of the ute. So if everything went really badly, I also have a water filter steriliser. And so worst comes to worst, if we can find water, we can clean it and and survive on it. Yeah. Lisa, you're happy to do, how long do you think you'll do it for? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. As long as it still feels right and we're... I can answer that. I can answer that quite simply, James. I know what he's going to We have three amazing daughters and a wonderful son. And the first time one of them turns around to their mother and says, we're going to get married or we're going to have a baby, (laughs) she's just going to stake me to the ground and say, that's it. You are not going anywhere because we need to be there. So... I plead to my daughters and my son, just give me a little bit extra time before you give us that announcement. But it's really, they control the travel destiny. When they turn around and say, Dad, we want to buy a house or Dad, we want to get married, then I'm automatically going to realise that's the end. That's the end. It's time to now go back and repay them for the freedom that they've given me for the last few years. I think we will always do it to some extent, travel. It just might be shorter time frames or something. But I, I think once you start, you, you just want to keep going. And you, cause you, and you can't see everything. There is so much to see. So, yeah. yeah. But that's, again, you know, what, what you've been saying all, all the way through, grab the opportunity while you can. Exactly. Your life's going to change again. You can do it now, so do it now. And that's everything. We met this 94-year-old bloke over at the Devil's Marbles. He was just amazing and he was a bit of a bird watcher too. And he said, I said, so are you a bit afraid being on your own at 94? And he goes, oh, you sound like my daughter there. She wants me to to pack up. And he said, I just had to tell her I'll pack up in another four or five years. (laughs) So how good would it be to be able to live on the road and be independent at 99 years of age and still going? You read often, don't you, that people retire and die because they don't know what to do. And yet you've got this amazing window of opportunity to just get out there and have a good time no matter when you choose to start. Yeah. Do you have any idea where you're going next? Um, not right at the moment. We've got, we've got until next Tuesday. You know, we stayed here so that we could catch up with you on this podcast. And then after that, we we've, we've, haven't even thought about where to head next. We'll, we'll see what happens in the next few days. <laughs> Can we just talk about a keeler? All right, off you go. So two days ago, we were coming back from, we'd we'd gone out for a run and we pulled up at the Causeway Lake to have a cup of coffee. And we were sitting, uh, Causeway Lake's a little tiny landlocked lake that sort of fed through a weir back out into the ocean at Yapoon. And we're sitting on the bank there and Lisa turns around and she goes, oh, look, there's a fin. 
over there in the water. And, and I know because of the depth of the lake that there can't be a fin in there, and besides which animals can't get in there unless they're prepared to jump over the weir. And so I had a look and it turned out to be a green marine turtle. And you could tell the way it was flapping its, its flipper that it, it was stressed. So we spent the next few hours trying to work out how to rescue this thing. And we had the futility and the anxiety of trying to get a government agency to help us. And at the time there was just nobody available. And so we had this roller coaster of emotions because one minute we can't find anybody. So we're having to make the decision to just leave this poor turtle to die. It couldn't dive. So it was stuck up on the top head down, bottom up. So we pretty much knew that if a turtle can't dive, it's going to die. It was so weak. It was it was in the last throes of its life. And so we walked away because we couldn't get any help. Nobody really knew what to do. So we walked away. And just at that moment, we got a telephone call from the Coin Island uh, Turtle Rehabilitation Centre to say that they'd catered a wildlife carer who was going to come and help us. But the problem that they had is how were they going to get this turtle to Coin Island? So Lisa and I just turned around and said, well, that's a lay down. We'll just drive it. We'll drive the 160 kilometres one way to take it. <laughs> An hour later, we've managed to retrieve this turtle. Paul came along and helped us grab it. He helped set us up in the back of the car so the turtle was fine. The towel's all over it. Put it in and said, right now, you guys just head. So we drove. For four hours, we get to these people, we hand it over to a vet, and then they turn around and said, you've rescued this turtle, you get to name it. So we named it Aquila, which is a Hawaiian translation for, if it's female, it's graceful, if it's male, it's noble. And so we called it Aquila, and we got notification yesterday in some video that they aspirated the air that in its carapace or its shell, and it was on the way to recovery because they'd give it. And so we actually saw some footage, footage of it diving down and swimming away. And it was just one of those moments that was just, we will never probably experience yeah. that again. And we would never have experienced it if we'd have been living the normal life of nine to five. Fantastic. That's it. That's a great story. I love Aquila. <laughs> yeah. You're a turtle Uber. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's right. Look at the friends you make on the road, eh? Yep. Yep. I'm going to give you a sentence and I just want you to complete it. Before you hit the road, don't forget your spirit of adventure and your sense of humour. You are going to need your sense of humour for when it, things turn to crap. And they do, you'll be pulling into a place, it'll be absolutely chucking down with rain, you'll get bogged, you'll get a flat tyre. And if you can look back on that and laugh at some stage, then it's worked well. And your spirit of adventure, if you go out there without that spirit to just really experience everything. Everything else that you can leave behind, you can eventually buy, but you can't buy those two things. And, and if you leave them behind, you're lost on the journey. I'm a bit more practical. Yeah. <laughs> so probably your sunglasses, <laughs> your hat, your keys, that kind of thing. But yeah, basically. Yes, very sensible. Fantastic. So great to meet you both, Tony and Lisa. It's been an absolute joy to uh, be invited into the van. Thanks so much for being part of uh, Life's Booming. It's a lifestyle, but we just want to hopefully inspire others to understand that it, it's not that hard to do. It's, it's simple to organise. Just go off and do it while you've got a chance. Thanks, James. 
I hope you've enjoyed the ride of our first episode of Life's Booming by Australian Seniors. If you've got a great story or a character you think we should meet, you can contact us here, lifesbooming at seniors.com.au. For more information on this episode and series, visit us at seniors.com.au. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe or wherever you find your podcasts. It'll help more people to find us. I'm James Valentine. I'll see you next time for another Life's Booming. Thank you.